UMass fans, welcome back to Commonwealth Conversations Everyday Minutemen Stories brought to you by the Massachusetts Collective. I'm your host, Nathan Strauss, and today's guest is longtime voice of the Minutemen, the predecessor to Jay Burnham with slightly better hair, and of course, a big league broadcaster now of his own, Josh Mauer. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. How's Milwaukee? It's good. I've always thought that Jay had better hair than I do, so I'm not sure I will go along with better hair, but I, I appreciate the nice introduction. And Milwaukee's great. I, I've spent most of the end of the fall and will spend the start of the winter back east, but uh, it's nice to be home because this is my home base nowadays. So I've been, uh, I've been fortunate to get to move to a really cool part of the country. This is, uh, I always tell Jay um, how what good hair he has. He was blessed with great hair and, um, you know, very good, very good voice as well. But uh, talk to us about, you know, your first couple of years, um, you know, with a full-time uh, major league job. How has that been for you? Well, this was a dream of mine since I was very, very little. I always, in the front of my mind, wanted to have the opportunity to call major league baseball games. And, that, and that's not to say that I don't love calling college sports because I do, but I grew up as a baseball guy uh, and, and used to listen to Philadelphia Phillies broadcast while I was going to sleep with the radio on my head on the pillow. And, and that was really what made me want to get into doing sports play by play in the first place was listening to, to baseball games on the radio. So while to break into this field and to get to this point, I've had to do a lot of different jobs. The ultimate goal was always going to be this. So I feel very fortunate, Nathan, to, to be doing it and to be doing it in a city where radio is still a big deal, which it is in Milwaukee. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Bob Euchre still calls games and, and I get to work with Bob, which is pretty remarkable. So uh, I'm, I'm in a good spot. I'm, thrilled to be doing what I'm doing. And I'm also thrilled that I still get to keep my toes in the college sports water as well. Uh, because I know while UMass fans aren't totally appreciative of this, I'm still back in the Bay State calling some college basketball games at, at BC. No, it is. Uh, we still appreciate it. Uh, it is. This is a, a sort of different episode uh, than many for me, because I, as someone who's sort of in the, I guess, the very early stages of their broadcasting career. It's very cool to have a opportunity to chat, uh, you know, with you in a way that's different than chatting with, you know, some of the other people we have on this podcast. So I appreciate you indulging me with my, my broadcast questions, but um, take me back to when you arrived at UMass, you went to Maryland for undergrad. What was your kind of first couple of years like out of undergrad and, and how did UMass end up becoming, you know, your gig? Well, it was actually very connected to my time as an undergrad at Maryland because Jason Yellen, who people that have followed UMass for the last couple of decades, it's a name that I'm sure that you'll recognize. Jason Yellen was working as a sports information, kind of a, a lower level entrant into the field while I was an undergrad at Maryland. He was just breaking into the professional ranks. So I knew Jason, and then Jason had come to take over the sports information department at UMass. So when I graduated college, I was kind of bouncing around 
I did some independent league baseball, some minor league baseball, some low-level college sports in the MEAC. I worked at Maryland Eastern Shore for a few years, and then I was in Charleston, South Carolina. I was calling basketball and football games for Charleston Southern University, which is in the Big South. And then Jason called me one day, and Bob Beeler, who had been the voice of the Minutemen for over a decade and is wonderful and one of the great college sports broadcasters in the country, uh, Bob was leaving. He was going to Boise State. And Jason called me and he said, hey, I'd like to talk. And that was just purely based on the fact that we had had that relationship from my undergrad days. And a few weeks later, I ended up getting offered the job. So I moved from South Carolina up to Amherst, Massachusetts, and that brought me to New England. And I ended up being in New England for the most part for the better part of 15 years because of that phone call and because of that relationship. Uh, so I'm, I'm forever grateful to Jason. And it's just funny when you think back on the way things work out in your life, you never know what relationship or what moment is going to lead to totally changing the way that you live. But it, it really did. Me having that relationship with Jason brought me to UMass, which has allowed me to do everything else that I've done in, in my career ever since. They always say, you know, it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of timing. And I find that no industry is that more prevalent in. Uh, than, than broadcasting, where there is such a finite number of roles and it's not um, it's not expanding in a way that other industries do. It's entirely captive. And I think it's it's very cool how these connections um, appear and how uh, and you know what they lead to later on down the line. But you joined UMass in 2008. And uh, what were the first couple of years like? What was the broadcast setup like back then, the TV, the radio side of things? What was your day to day like? Well, it was a it, it was a big job for me because I was a full time member of the athletic department back then. I was the director of broadcasting in addition to the voice of the football and the basketball teams and and lacrosse that I did on the radio and and the various Olympic sports that we did a broadcast of online. And really, this is kudos to Jason Yellen again. Uh, a lot of Jason Yellen shout outs at the beginning of this episode. I know we were working really hard to be at the forefront of video broadcasting, web streaming for all sports. Uh, we wanted to be at the forefront of the Atlantic 10 at the time. This was before the conferences had really made deals with the ESPN pluses of the world to be able to, to put games out there for the soccers and the field hockeys and the lacrosses. Um, we, we worked really hard to put out a product for every sport that was played at UMass. And that took up most of my time and energy, it felt like, even more so than the radio broadcasting stuff that was supposed to be my main focus. And uh, there were hours and hours and hours, days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months of work putting in infrastructure and getting equipment and scheduling and all the things that went along with with back then in 2008, being able to broadcast soccer games, for example, uh, that became a big part of what I did day to day. Now, there were certainly other non-administrative jobs that I enjoyed. Certainly looking back at it, I enjoyed a lot more. I loved calling the games. I did them all on radio. Back then, we were on WRNX, which was the FM flagship that was based in Springfield. It was a clear channel affiliate and I would go to Springfield once a week and record promos. We did a television show on CBS three Springfield. That was during the football season. It was a football show. 
during the basketball season. It was a Derek Kellogg show. I would go into CBS three twice a week. I would produce that show. I would edit it. I would host it, write the scripts for it. Uh, I had a lot going on. And as a late twenties, you know, young guy that had just moved to the area, it was great because I had time and it kept me busy pretty much 24 seven. So I, I loved it. And, uh, all of that, uh, during a time when I was still kind of learning the ropes of UMass and the history of all the athletic teams and programs and all the people that were involved in the athletics department. I think back on those first few years, very, very fondly. Yeah. I think, uh, your job sounds very similar to what, you know, Jay Burnham does now only with the caveat that streaming and, you know, everything involving streaming, both the ESPN plus side of things, and also the amount of equipment that is needed and the production setup that has changed a lot as streaming has become, you know, oh, yeah. de facto um, way that people consume uh, broadcast media. So I don't envy you for what you had to do back then. But when you were in your time at UMass, do you have a particular game or moment that you look back on as being either formative or something that, you know, really made your real, for example? Like, was there a moment that you thought, wow, this is great. I'm keeping this call forever. <laughs> well, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. So I was thinking about what I was going to say before we started this recording. I, I would tell you, just because I, I saw the anniversary, we just had the 15-year anniversary of this game. As we're recording this, it was yesterday. I'm not sure when this episode is coming out, but it was December 12th. I'm sorry, December 13th, 2008 in Kansas City. It was my first year at UMass and Derek Kellogg's first year as the head coach at UMass. And a one in six Minutemen basketball team went to Kansas at the Sprint Center and played the defending national champion Jayhawks in front of 19,000 Kansas fans. And with a team that had like five NBA players on it, UMass won by a point. And it was one of the most remarkable wins and crazy upsets that I've ever been a part of, maybe the the greatest up upset that I've ever been fortunate enough to call. And I don't have the audio of it because we weren't archiving anything back then. And I had a recorder that I used, but for some reason, the power cut off right at the end of the game and there was no battery in my recorder and the whole thing was lost. So the entire broadcast is lost to history and it's probably the most fun game that I ever got to do at UMass. And it was my first year right away back then, 15 years ago. That's um, that's up there. It, it's right behind the library of Alexandria. As far as, you know, tragedies about lost media, it goes library of Alexandria number one and uh, Josh Bauer's call of the uh, upset of Kansas <laughs> number two. And there are some other notable ones at three and four, but um, you also, as I think pretty much every broadcaster does, or many broadcasters do, worked in minor league baseball because that's what you do in the summers because it is the only sport um, really with a broadcasting presence um, in the summers. I know you worked uh, in Trenton briefly, but then you became a big part of what is probably the most formidable lineup of minor league broadcasters ever. And that would be the Paw Sox, what is now the Woo Sox um, broadcasting pipeline that is produced amongst others, yourself, uh, both Fleming Brothers, Don Orsillo, Gary Cohen, the list goes on and on. But take me through your time in in, in minor league baseball and uh, what did that do for you? Well, 
minor league baseball as a lifestyle is different than just about anything that you can experience in our society. I, I truly mean that. I worked in the minor leagues for the better part of 20 years. So I know that lifestyle intimately. And I was very tired of it at the end. But I can tell you in retrospect, I wouldn't have gone any other direction. I, I, I'm very appreciative to the experiences that I got to have for all those years and, and the people that I met, relationships that I made, places that I got to visit, all because of being a broadcaster in the minor leagues. So, Nathan, I, I started at the very lowest level. I was an intern for the Brockton Rocks right when I graduated from Maryland in 2003. That was my first professional job, and I was a studio pre- and post-game host. And also, I, I was the guy that ran the board. I, I was the guy who got the play-by-play broadcaster on the air and played the commercials. And I did it from this old AM radio station in Brockton, Massachusetts. It was WBET. And I would go there at night when the games were played and nobody else was in the radio station. But there was this cat and there was a cat. His name was Ed. He had three legs. And Ed and I hung out every night throughout this Brockton Rocks baseball season 20-some years ago. (laughs) I finally asked the GM of the radio station, why do you have a cat that lives in your station. And he said, well, didn't you figure it out? It's because we've got that mouse problem. <laughs> and so I, I, I thought, well, <laughs> goodness gracious. That, that was my introduction to, uh, to the minors. But I, I worked up the way that a player would, ideally. I went from independent ball to single A, which was in Charleston, South Carolina, working for the Yankees team there. Then I went to double A in Trenton, as you mentioned, which was also a Yankees affiliate. And then in Pawtucket, which became Worcester, I was there for eight years. Uh, and, and so I got to experience every level of the minor leagues. The travel gets better and the, the ballparks that you play in are better as you move up. It's nothing like the majors, but um, I got to see it from the lowest to the highest level. So I think the experience of that has been invaluable for me in my life and my career. For the record, I thought that the Joe and Charleston was my favorite destination in uh, what is now the Carolina league. And, and was at that point, um, was it just uh, the, the uh, class a, what was the, what was the lead? Was it Carolina league back yeah, then as well? It, it was, it was the Sally league. Uh, the yeah. South back Atlantic. in the Sally league. Yeah. Yeah. So and the, the South Atlantic league was massive back then. There were 16 teams in it. So half of baseball, more than half of baseball had a team in that league. And we would go two, three years at a time without visiting some of the other 15 teams. So I I spent tons of time at the same ballparks in that league in Rome, Georgia, in Columbus, Georgia, in Greenville, South Carolina, in Kannapolis, North Carolina. You know, just parts of the South. You know what? It was like experiencing a piece of Americana. I loved it. I really did. That's exactly the way that I sold my parents, by the way, on what I did this last year where I was uh, was the number one for the Green Jackets. Um, which have a new stadium since the the time when you were there, most likely. But I sold oh, yeah. them as I'm going to be traveling all around the Carolinas, seeing a part of America that I might never see again. And um, they ended up being okay with it, and it worked out. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of people who work in minor league baseball have a story like this, where you were calling some game. It was like a Wednesday night, and you saw a prospect, some guy who you might not have ever heard of before, but you saw him play, and were like, "Wow, this guy is legit." <laughs> This guy's a, a stud. 
<laughs> do you have a, a player or two who you watched either in the low minors or even um, in Pawtucket who you saw and just thought to yourself like, yeah, this guy is like, he's going to be the guy they want him to be. Well, I've, I've got lots of examples of that as almost 20 years in the minors might indicate, but I think the best one that people listening to this would appreciate is Mookie Betts. Mookie came to Pawtucket in 2014, which was my first season calling the games for the Paw Sox. And we had heard how great he was and could be. And it was pretty apparent immediately. Our manager at the time, Kevin Bowles, said about Mookie's time with the Paw Sox, he said he was here between haircuts. <laughs> and, and off he went into the major leagues and into superstardom. I talked to a scout when Mookie was coming who told me, this guy is not going to be in the major leagues. He's going to be a perennial all-star. And I'm looking at this guy. You know, he's not big. He, he didn't look like he would have a lot of power. He didn't, you didn't know what position he was going to play. And I'm thinking, what does this guy mean? He's going to be a perennial all-star. This guy's like five foot ten. And, and sure enough, it, it, it took like two days to watch Mookie hit and the way that he had just approached the game. And you knew that he was going to be off and running. And, and sh you know, it was only a few years later before he won an MVP. I could probably list you 10 guys that I saw that stood out. And that what that that was one of the things that I really loved about working at especially the lower levels of the minor leagues. When you saw someone that was really going to be special, they stood out like a sore thumb. And I wasn't a scout, but even I with my untrained eye, I could tell the ones that were really, really good. I remember seeing Daniel Bard pitch an A-ball when he had been drafted by the Red Sox. And this was uh right after the first time that he had gotten over his case of the yips and Daniel Bards had the yips on and off throughout his career, but he had just come back from the yips and he was throwing hundred miles an hour, which I never saw back then in the South Atlantic league. And I just, it, it took my breath away. I, I just was like, well, this guy is so much better than everybody else I've ever seen. And, and you could tell that he was going to be a major league pitcher. It's pretty fun uh, when that happens. And obviously with only two years of minor league experience, uh, I don't have the same repertoire of, of guys as you, but you, it's definitely something that, that happens, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, obviously now you work with a great cast of broadcasters, but I think the most notable one is maybe the most notable living baseball broadcaster of all in Bob Uecker, who is famous for amongst other things, his eccentricity, his personality. Uh, what is it like working with him? And was it hard to build a rapport with him on air because of how ingrained he is in his broadcasts? It's a honor of my life to be in the same broadcast team as Uke. He's going to have a birthday next month. Uh, and, and, you know, the older he gets, it's just a marvel at how good he still is. Bob still calls a game on the radio as uniquely and I think as, as entertainingly as anybody that's doing it. And he's been doing it for about 55 years. So, you, you know, you do the math, you just, <laughs> you marvel at how many games he's called and how good he is at doing it. Uh, so my experience with Bob now for two seasons, it, it's uh, a lot of, just listening to him tell stories and when he holds court before a, a game with the rest of us in the broadcast booth, talking about whatever 
it doesn't matter. It's just fascinating. It's, it could be funny. It could be entertaining or, or it could be serious. Uh, but I, I always learn something. Uh, he's, he's got this amazing storytelling ability as a stand-up comedian, which Bob was and, and did so for years and years and years. He was on the tonight show more than any guest that Johnny Carson ever had. Bob's ability to tell stories, make you laugh, but also keep you interested and intrigued. Uh, it's, it's unmatched from anybody that I've ever been around and listened to. So I just try to be a sponge and, and listen and learn about baseball history, about American history. He's met so many people outside of the realm of baseball that he knows and can talk, talk about. Uh, and then also I've learned from Bob about the craft of play-by-play, which is something that really caught me off guard. I, I didn't think as the new guy that got hired that late in his career that he would really take an interest in trying to help me improve as a broadcaster, but he has. And, and that I'm forever grateful for and, and I'm indebted to him. It's so it's so cool. Uh, um, and I really enjoy listening to him just in general. Uh, I think he has the same kind of respect that Vin Scully had. I mean, you're talking about someone who won the Frick Award 20 years ago and it's still broadcasting, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Is there a broadcaster out there who you would want to work with who you haven't gotten to work with before? Hmm. Oh, there's there's many. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what sport are we talking about? Well, that maybe it's reductive, but, you know, obviously you said that baseball was the dream or a baseball job like that was the dream. But is baseball your favorite sport to call of all of them that you got to do? Because, I mean, at UMass, you were doing everything from lacrosse and soccer to hoops and football. Is there... Do you still get that hankering for like a really good college soccer game or, you know, like a hockey game? Like what would be your, uh, is there, is there space in your heart for all of those things? Yeah, there, there is. I, I always give the stock answer that my favorite sport to call is whatever season it currently is. And it, it sounds, I guess, a, a bit corny, but I think that there's truth to that. I love sports and I love broadcasting sports. And so whatever's going on, I want to be a part of it. Uh, I, I, I love college basketball. I, I think that's always for me, if baseball's not a clear cut number one on my list, uh, then college basketball's one a, uh, and, and those are my fondest memories with UMass because of the fact I mentioned that game 15 years ago against Kansas, but then in, in nine years calling games with Derek Kellogg as the coach, there were some pretty good teams. And I think that does get lost to memory a little bit, uh, especially in the three years that Chaz Williams was on the team and eligible to play. There were two NITs and an NCAA tournament, the only NCAA tournament that UMass has made in the last, what, 20-some years. Uh, and I got to call that season back in 2013-14, which was remarkable. They made it into the top 15 in the country and got a six seed in the NCAA tournament that year. Uh, calling those games with Tim Collins that season on the radio was about as much fun as I've ever had doing any season in any sport. So uh, long-winded way of saying I, I do love and still love calling college sports, any of them, all of them. Uh, and we haven't talked about UMass football, but another one of my biggest, greatest memories is the first game that, UMass football played as an FBS program and just thinking about all the years, decades 
and people that had come before it to lead up to that point. Uh, it wasn't a very memorable game on the field. They got crushed by UConn. But the fact that it had happened, even in the, I think that was my fourth year, maybe fifth year calling UMass games, um, knowing that they had come from the 1AA FCS ranks. And when I got there, people saying there's no way they'll ever move up to the bowl subdivision. So then the fact that they were doing it and they were playing on national TV against, uh, against an old rival, um, I, I, I found that remarkable. And I was glad to be a part of those as well. Who was the best uh, player or coach to interview at UMass? Well, I, it, Derek Kellogg is, and I, I say this with an agenda because Derek is still a great friend, but Derek was so good on air and media savvy that I always said, and I meant it, he could have hosted his own shows. I mean, that's, that's how great Derek was in, in interviews. Um, so he set a very high bar. But of the coaches in the major sports that I got to work with, they were all good. I mean, from Don Brown, who you guys know very well now, but I was around for his first tenure as head coach. And Don and I did a television show every week. And, and he could be tough as nails or he could be a big teddy bear. Um, you know, th- so I, there were some very, very good coaches that I dealt with. One of my favorites of all time, um, may she rest in peace, is Elaine Sortino who of uh, any coach in any sport that I ever was fortunate enough to be around, Elaine was as good of a coach as I've ever witnessed. She got the most out of her players, the respect of everybody that she was ever in a room with. And, and even I, as a broadcaster, wanted to listen to her talk about whatever she was talking about to learn from her. Uh, I, I have immense, immense love and respect for Elaine and what everything that she accomplished in her great life. It is awesome. Um, every spring, there is a game in honor of her at Sortino Field, the field that, of course, bears her name. Um, and obviously, Danielle Henderson, who uh, was a, a great player under her, is now the steward of, of the UMass softball program, which is great because everything, you know, comes together in a nice circle. Uh, before we let you go, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this broadcast, but I'm adding in a third just for my own personal edification. I grew up, um, without, I grew up wanting to be Sean Grandy, um, and then occasionally Don Orsillo. Those were the people who I grew up as, you know, professional role models, um, and also, you know, entertainment because I, that was the main way that I consumed sports, uh, with, without cable TV, I had an old boom box that I would tuck underneath my covers at night and listen to games as I was falling asleep. Uh, But who in the broadcasting world were the people who you either modeled yourself off of or tried to emulate in some way? We were scratching the surface of this earlier in the interview. And for me, when I was listening to Philadelphia Phillies games on the radio, falling asleep as as a younger kid, it was Harry Callis in Philadelphia, who was the voice of the Phillies for decades and decades, and he's a Ford Frick Award winner, so he's in the Hall of Fame. Harry was amazing, and that that was, uh, for me, that the, the pinnacle was trying to emulate Harry Callis, and trying to do a Harry Callis impersonation is a horrible idea because his voice is so unique. Um, but I think my style was pretty well mimicked after, after Harry, uh, and I got to meet him before he passed away, I, I had spent a couple of years working as an intern and then a production assistant 
for Phillies television. So I got to know Harry. Uh, for me, for me, that that was the guy. There are others, but he was the one that kind of set the standard for me when I was growing up and and made me want to do what I do. A hundred percent. I completely, completely get that. And uh, I'll sometimes be able to watch. Yeah. Uh, what's his son's name? Who's uh, with the Todd. Astros? Yeah. Todd. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty cool uh, to, to, to see. And I love asking that question too. I asked, I would, I would ask that this summer too, when I was meeting all of the other broadcasters in the Carolina league for the first time. Uh, Cause I think it says a lot about the profession, but the two questions that we do ask everyone is back in the day, when you were a student or when you were working at UMass or even now, if you could have an NIL deal, what company or business would you want to partner with? Mm-hmm. So if I were getting my own NIL deal, I feel like this is a little bit disingenuous because I spent so much time there anyway, but the, the Hangar Pub and Grill, where I did two radio shows every week for over a decade and then was there after every game, even if I wasn't working. Uh, I spent so much time and spent so much effort and energy and frankly money at, at the old hangar. And then at the end of my career at UMass at the new hangar, I, I, I might as well have had an NIL with them. So I, I'll go with the hangar and my good friend, Mike Stone, who used to be in charge and uh, all the the great wait staff and everybody who, who helped us do countless countless umass sports shows from inside of their walls when people were trying to eat (laughs) we would set up our own speakers and we would overpower whatever game was on television because we had to talk to Derek kellogg or we had to talk to kevin morris or whatever was the case so i'll say the hangar pub and grill great answer my senior year so two and a half years ago they put up a new apartment complex about 150 feet from the hangar um sort of towards route nine and I was able to get one of their first ever units. And it was great because normally if I want the hanger, I'll look at, I'll look and I'll get delivery. And the fees on the delivery app are what is prohibitive for me. I'll look at it and I'll say, hey, maybe you don't need this tonight. But when I was there, I didn't have an excuse because I would just walk down and get it. And it got to the point where senior spring, I would walk in and they would know exactly what I wanted and it would be out within 15 minutes. So that's a great choice. And it certainly, it would certainly be high on my list as well. The last question that we ask everyone, and I have a, a, a hunch as to who you will say for this, but if you were the coach of UMass, an all-time UMass basketball team, and UMass is down by one, and you get 15 seconds to draw up a play for a player, which all-time player would you have taking your final shot? Well, it, it, it would be incredibly uh, short-sighted to not say Julius Irving. Right. I mean, I, how could you not? One thing that I was fortunate enough to get to work on my very first year as the director of broadcasting at UMass, it was the 100th season of UMass basketball. And in honor of that, that all time 100 years, they came to me and they said, Do you know anything about putting together a documentary? And I said, well, I, I could figure it out. And we spent a full probably nine months working on the comprehensive history of UMass men's basketball, all 100 seasons of it up to that point in 2008, 2009. And I was so immersed in the history of the program that I, I do feel like I have an appreciation for the great players that came before the ones that I got to cover. Um, 
but Julius serving at UMass for the three years he was there and the two years that he was on the varsity, it, it was like a revelation to Western Massachusetts, unlike anything that they've ever experienced. I mean, Jul- Julius had a game where he had 40 points and 30 rebounds against Syracuse at the, at the old Curry Hicks cage. It, it was unstoppable. The Yankee conference never saw anything like it. So, uh, for, for me to say anybody other than, than Julius back there in the late 60s into the, the first year or two of the 1970s, he'd have to be the guy. He was unstoppable. That is a tremendous, a tremendous answer. Um, and Who did you think I was going to say? Well, people have been going with Chaz. And I think that makes sense because people, people have been going with Chaz. They've been going with the late Mike Williams um, and Noah Fernandes, who hit a couple of game winners in the last couple of years. Uh, but Dr. J would seem to me to be the sort of all-time answer when it comes to like him, him and Camby are the two, you know, yeah. highest profile guys ever. And I'm surprised more people aren't saying them. Well, I, there's different kinds of players, right? So if you needed a guard to take a shot now, people would say that Mike Williams was as clutch as any UMass player has ever been. And certainly the game winning shots that he hit against Temple back there in those great rivalry games when each team was in the top 10 every year in the mid nineties. Uh, Mike Williams did it over and over again. So, yeah, if you're looking for a clutch gene, he might have been the guy. Chaz hit some big shots in his career. I'm not sure he ever hit a buzzer beater. And uh, But the, the greatest athlete that's ever been to UMass, bar none, is Julius Irving. And there, there is no close second. That's a very, very good statement. And uh, it, it was awesome to see, you know, whenever he comes back for the statue unveiling or for whatever the case may be. Um, such like an important figure in the uh, the annals of history. Josh, thank you so much. If people wanted to follow you and check out your work or tune into a Boston College basketball game or whatever the case may be, um, <laughs> where would be the best place for people to do that for you? I'm laughing because does anybody listening to this podcast really want to check out a BC basketball game? Well, I grew up in I grew up outside of Boston, and so I would listen to, I want to say, maybe John Mita Perel calling Ooh. games for them. Um, and it would be like a random Wednesday night and they'd be taking on, you know, Sienna or Wagner or something. And um, it, it, it was what was on, you know, yeah. people who might yeah. recognize your voice and, and be be convinced to stick around, even if they're not rooting for BC or rooting against them out of spite. Well, I, I would say uh, thank you if you do. And uh, it's 8.50 a.m. The old WEI stick out in Boston is the flagship. So those games are available there on, on the old AM radio dial. And you can listen on the Varsity Network app the same way that you listen to to Jay called the uh, the BC men's games or Tyler or, or you, Nathan, or whoever else is on. Uh, I, I do have to say one thing that I didn't get to hit on is that UMass fans are incredibly lucky to have Jay Burnham. I've known Jay for years and years. We overlapped in the South Atlantic League doing minor league baseball when he was working for the Asheville Tourists all the way back in 2007. So I've known Jay for, gosh, too long. Uh, I'm very proud to call him a good friend. And I was even more proud and pleased that he became my successor as the the voice of the Minutemen. So uh, I know people know this because they've been able to listen to him, but I just add my my thoughts to the pile that uh, people are very, very lucky out there to be able to listen to Jay. 
Yeah, and you, you talk about um, you talk about how UMass you wanted UMass to punch above its weight back when you were starting. UMass still, I would say, punches well above its weight when it comes to the the content that gets put out, um, the caliber of the broadcasts, and of course the talent. I mean, you've got Jay, you've got Tyler Murray, um, you've got Cooper Boardman, Adam Frenier. I'll even throw myself in there, but I, as someone who wants to become as as talented as as they are, or certainly at least it gets some hair tips from them. Um, but it is uh, it is really cool. Um, and, and sort of the, the greater Woo Sox, um, you know, community of broadcasters as well, many of whom end up spending time in and around UMass is uh, is a really great group. And it's, it's a great place for me to learn from them and uh, obviously get to uh, work with them as well. Uh, but thank you so much for for hopping on. Um, best of luck with this this off season and uh, getting ready for opening day where I guess um, Jackson Churio is going to be going to be a big part for you uh, this coming year. Apparently he's uh, He's up next, so yeah, we'll we'll see about young Mr. Chorio. I know he's only nineteen, so I don't know that they've totally anointed him a spot on the opening day roster, but they're gonna have him up there sooner rather than later. I can tell you that they're paying him that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been Commonwealth Conversations Everyday Minuteman Stories, as always, brought to you by the Mass Collective. A reminder to follow the Collective on Twitter, Instagram, etc., and become a member if you aren't already. I've been Nathan Strauss. We'll talk to you next time.